right, welcome back, guys, to his and her podcast. As always, I'm Mr. Weich. I'm Miss Prickett. Well, thank you for meeting us a little early this week. Uh, we had to go early because um, I'm headed to see my in-laws in Florida so they can see the new baby. I think Miss Prickett's about to head out of town as well. Yeah, I'm heading out on Friday. There we go. So uh, most likely we won't do an episode next week just because I can promise you when I'll be in Florida for 10 days, I'm not going to do any research. That's just not <laughs> happening. Call me yeah. lazy if you must. It is true. I am lazy. Okay. Nope. With the amount of research that uh, you've put into all of these, I think uh, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it is research, but I do enjoy it. So, you know, can't really complain. Um, okay. Well, let's get go ahead and get started today. It, it is Miss Prickett's turn. And at the end, I'll have a little bit of history bits or whatever. Whatever you want to call them. <laughs> okay. All right, guys. So today I am going to be talking about an event from the Cold War. Mm. And I decided on this one really just because we did not get to learn about the Cold War. So I thought it might be a good opportunity for those of you who are interested in this time period just to talk a little bit about it and especially talk about a topic that even if we had learned about it is a little bit more low-key and typically mm -hmm. not talked about quite as much. So before we get started on the actual story, I'm going to just give you guys a background on the Cold War since, again, we haven't talked about it. So we're finishing up World War II this week, and what follows World War II is about 40 years of what's known as the Cold War. And after World War II, one of you actually asked me way back, probably in February or March, why the United States became really powerful and why the British became not as powerful as they had been considering, you know, that they had the most powerful Navy and were one of the leaders in, in imperialism and industrialization obviously started there. So one of you was just kind of curious and asked me a great question. Well, your answer has arrived in World War II. And World War II, really, there are a couple I guess you could say victors, but at the same time, World yeah. War II is a, an incredibly destructive war. After the war, nobody wants another war. Um, and yeah, but ultimately you guys know that the Allies do win and two of the superpowers to come out of the war are the United States and the Soviet Union. And as you have... No, probably noticed the two have ever really since World War One. There's been kind of an increasing tension between the two countries and a buildup of mistrust over the capitalist, democratic country of the U.S. and the communist um, USSR, Soviet Union. So. You also hopefully have been listening to our read-alouds and know a little bit about Stalin. Stalin is still the leader of the Soviet Union at the time. And basically what happens after World War II is that 
Europe is divided between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. And Eastern Europe is going to be referred to as the Iron Curtain by a guy named Winston Churchill. He has a famous speech about the Iron Curtain. And if you think about it, Iron Curtain, what he's suggesting there is that iron is very strong. Um, you can't really get through iron very easily. And um, a curtain, you, of course, can't see beyond a curtain. So the Iron Curtain is supposed to represent this idea that the eastern part of Europe um, is really kind of hidden to people. People don't know really what's going on over there. It's um, hard to figure out what's going on under Stalin's leadership in Eastern Europe. And at this point, really what makes up this area that I'm talking about of Eastern Europe, you have the Soviet Union, and then you also have countries like Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Poland's gonna be a part of that, Bulgaria, um, and what happens essentially is all of these countries kind of come under um, really the, um, sorry, Stalin's rule and his secret police, which um, the NKVD. So all of those countries that I just mentioned are going to be communist ruled countries and what begins after the war is this idea of containment, okay? So containment is the idea of stopping the spread of communism. And Harry Truman, who is still the president um, immediately following the war, basically issues this doc doctrine called the Truman Doctrine. And he says the U.S. will come to any country's aid who is I guess you could say being persuaded to adopt communist policies and will help you kind of resist um, the communist leaders basically is what he's, he's saying in this doctrine. There's also something called the Marshall Plan where the U.S. Um, gives tons of aid to Western European countries to try and kind of ensure for one thing that they would not become communist countries and um, to help them repair the damage also from the war. And there's also some agreements going on. So you have um, something called um, the Warsaw Pact, which is kind of a response to um, another pact initially made by the U.S., Britain, France. Um, was anybody else involved in that? Yeah. Western Germany. Yeah. Probably. Um, all right. And one important thing, too, speaking of Germany, Germany is now at this point split. Um, the city of Berlin, later on, there's going to be a wall construct constructed in the city of Berlin. Basically, the western side on is going to be considered democratic, and the other side is going to be considered communist under the Soviet Union's rule. And so there's this wall put up. I think over the course of the war, about 180 people, something like that, tried to actually escape over the wall mm -hmm. into Western Germany. Most of those people were not successful. They had guards all along the wall, and it was very difficult to escape. Um, so that gives you a little bit of a background. So we come to the end 
of, um, well, okay, let me back, backtrack just a little bit. Um, what happens over these next, I guess, eight years while Stalin's still in charge, basically, is collectivization, um, all of those programs that we saw Stalin implement in the Soviet Union to try and speed up the industrialization process are kind of ongoing throughout Eastern Europe. But as you guys who have um, listened to the very last chapters of the Read Aloud, I actually just finished mine today, uh, a little behind Mr. Weish. <laughs> but um, yeah, so you guys know that Stalin ends up dying in 1953. And the person who takes over after him is a guy named Khrushchev. Is that how you, I'm pronouncing that Khrushchev. right? Khrushchev, yes. Khrushchev. Um, and Khrushchev is not as extreme as Stalin. We're just going to say it like that. He kind of wants to de-Stalinize. I don't know if that's a word, but <laughs> he wants to take away a lot of the policies like the collectivization, the five-year plans, the things that Stalin began implementing that we know did really, as far as industrialization, rapidly industrialize Russia, but at the cost of millions and millions of people in the Soviet Union. And so he is hoping to start slowly taking that away. Now the problem is, and some of you are probably like, seriously, there's still people who are supporting Stalin and what he did, but the answer is yes. Um, there are still people who are kind of pro those policies and want to see Russia continue to industrialize even more. And so he, it's not like he's just going to go into office and, you know, immediately change everything. Um, and they are still going to be a communist country as well. So over this next period of time in the 50s, in the meantime, um, the new president of the U.S. at this point is Dwight Eisenhower, also known as Ike. Mm -hmm. You have heard of him from D-Day. He led that invasion that was one of well, really was the reason that the war on the European side began to end. And the people in the U.S. really liked him. Um, they kind of saw him as this war hero who had helped end um, World War II. And so he was very well liked by the people. Um, and so he's the president at the time. And so him and Khrushchev are trying to somewhat start easing tensions between the two countries because at this point really what's going on is there's been in 1949 the USSR had officially built a nuclear weapon at that point so you guys know the US had the atomic bomb um, they you know made it pretty clear to Russia too that they had an atomic bomb and um, so at this point, these two countries both have nuclear weaponry, and that's really what the Cold War revolves around, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. Um, it's one of the major things, at least, that it revolves around this idea of um, the possibility of having a World War III, 
more in the nuclear weapon yep. um, style. So Soviet Union builds that in 1949, and there's this kind of increasing pressure between the two countries, increasing tension because when you're dealing with nuclear weaponry, as you guys know from the atomic bombs, it's um, very serious and very scary. So when Khrushchev and Eisenhower kind of both become the new leaders, there is a meeting in 1955 in Genova, and they start to kind of get towards the process of maybe easing tensions, but there's definitely still fear at this point. So in 1956, here's our story. So that was all really just background. <laughs> our story is about something called the U-2 spy planes. And so the U-2 spy planes are created in the 1950s, like I said, and they're really created with the intention of flying over some of these countries that the U.S. is growing wary of, fearful of, such as, well, other than the Soviet Union, China is also a country that they're going to be starting to spy on. Um, Mao Zedong would later become the leader of, of China, and um, Cuba is another country. When you do learn about the Cold War one day, Cuba is um, involved in a lot of the events that, yeah, are significant in the Cold War, I guess you could say. So anyway, so they create these U-2 planes, air, aircraft planes, to essentially spy on these countries so that they can take um, photographic images of their missiles and their launch sites and stuff like that. Okay, so that's the purpose that these are created. However, what they are telling the public is that these are used for weather, okay? So it's kind of the cover-up story, is that these are not used as spy things, but more used for um, NASA and them to mm -hmm. get a better picture of um, meteorological types of things. I don't know very much about meteorology, so I cannot expand <laughs> much farther. But Mr. Weish, if you do, feel free. Um, no, I, I'm not a meteorologist. Yeah, this would be a good point to bring um, Miss Nichols in if we could. Yes. Um, <laughs> Though I do know that airplanes took just still photos, like like a like a camera with not not digital. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a good. One point. at a time. Yeah. So. Starting in 1956 is really when they start these flights. And this is also being, this is kind of an operation by the CIA as well. So this is going through the CIA. Um, and they fly the first one over East Germany. Remember, East Germany is on the other side of the wall in Berlin. And um, over the span of the next four years, I think they conduct, conducted around 200 of these U-2 flights. And a couple things about the aircraft in particular that I wanted to mention. One thing is it can fly up to 70,000 feet. And the purpose yeah. of being able to, or really the advantage of flying that high is you can't hopefully be reached by missile systems is, is the thought process there. Um, the 
U and the U2 actually actually stands for utility. And um, basically this aircraft, it was created so that it could maintain a really low weight, but go at a really high altitude, okay? Um, so that's just a few things about the plane itself. Um, all right, so, oh, also these aircrafts, essentially too, they could, could detect if there was any sort of radioactive, um, I guess, trying to search for the word, radioactive uh, substance that had been, um, it basically was so that they could tell that a country had recently tested some sort of nuclear weapon, all right? So the- Particles enter the air. Yeah, particles, there we go. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. So at this point, it's 1969, just easing tensions in general. So this is kind of a big deal. This has been, at this point, going on really for 15 years, which is a pretty long time. Um, so these tensions between the two countries have been going on for a while, and this is was going to be seen by many as the point where negotiations might begin. Um, Khrushchev had actually visited the U.S. in 1959, which was kind of another sign towards potentially making progress. I think I read somewhere too that the U.S. had begun, um, where is it? Sorry guys. Basically the U.S. had begun to take steps um, to, to show the Soviet Union that they were serious about negotiating as well. Um, things like not testing as many nuclear weapons and stuff like that. So there was definitely this trend towards um, peace talks. But what ends up happening in 1960 is another U-2 spy plane takes off, this time to spy on the Soviet Union. And this is being flown by a guy named Gary Francis Powers, is the name of the pilot. And on May 1st of 1960, Gary Powers is shot down by the Soviet Union. His plane is shot and he is assumed dead, basically. So he, his plane is shot. At this point, the U.S. knows that the Soviet Union is aware of what they've been doing, at least to a degree. A degree now when this all initially happens they don't know the details they don't know if the Soviet Union has been able to find their um, the remains of the plane they don't know if powers is alive there's a lot of things that they have to kind of assume and play it almost like it's a worst-case scenario type okay. thing when they're making their decision on what to do at this point okay so what happens basically is initially 
the president, President Eisenhower and the administration deny that they have been using these planes for espionage. And I was reading one source, speaking of, I forgot to mention my sources, but this one in particular was from JSTOR and it's one called Dwight D. Eisenhower, the spy plane in the summit. It's by a guy named E. Bruce Gillyhoad, I think. And he basically talks about the thoughts running through the minds of the administration, the CIA, everybody involved in the U-2 spy planes initially after the plane crashes. And some of the things I read was, one, typically the head of state does not claim responsibility for espionage mm -hmm. actions. Okay, so that was kind of one, one thought that they had. Um, another was they did not think that the Soviet Union would really come out and say what exactly they thought had happened because they, their thought process was the Soviet Union doesn't want to admit to the fact that the United States has basically been spying on them for years without them being able to do anything about it. So for those reasons, they basically deny um, that it was espionage. They go with the cover-up story of the weather and that it was a project being sponsored by NASA. And so that's what they release at first. Now what happens is Khrushchev comes back and he basically says that um, it was the work of militarists in the Pentagon. All right, so the Pentagon is a building in Washington, D.C. Um, and he basically says that's who's, who's to blame for this. Um, when Khrushchev first came out and made his speech about the plane crash, they did not say anything about powers. I meant to mention that. They did not say whether they had powers or not. So again, the U.S. did not know about that. Um, in the second speech he gives to, I think it's called like, not the Supreme Court, but it's called like the Supreme or something in mm. the Soviet Union. Um, when he oh the assemb like the uh, it's something like the assembly. Oh, I know, I know it. Um, whatever. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll figure it out. Hold on. That's okay. All right, but he's so now he's giving his second kind of speech to the government in the USSR. And when he gives this speech, this time he reveals that they actually have powers. So powers is alive, which the U.S. had assumed that he was not alive because to survive a crash like that um, was not super likely. But now they find out that he is alive. And at this point, Khrushchev also says that, um, again, this was the work of militarists in the Pentagon. So now, flip back to the U.S., Eisenhower has a bit of a problem because if he admits that it was people in the Pentagon, it will look bad on him, basically, because it will look like he has no idea what's going on in his own administration, in his own country, really. And so 
he decides at this point to now admit that it was that he was responsible for the espionage and the U2 pilots. And they basically go with the story. Tom Gates was his um, was somebody in the I think it was the deputy secretary secretary of defense at the time. And he thought from the beginning that they should just claim responsibility and say that it was a national security matter because remember there is a lot of fear during this time. So that's what Eisenhower ends up doing this when he talks about it the second time. Um, he says it was a matter of national security and we were taking these photos to try and get more intel on mm-hmm. the nuclear weapons and the missiles and the things that these countries were creating that the U.S. still did not feel they could trust. Um, so that's what he releases to the public. And what happens at that point now for Khrushchev, he's basically humiliated by what Eisenhower now claims because um, it's basic. He's, he's faced criticism already. Cause remember what I said at the beginning, there's still plenty of people who, within the government who liked Stalin and liked his policies and felt like Khrushchev was not doing enough, not being aggressive enough against countries like the U.S. um, and should be taking a little bit of a more aggressive approach. And so Khrushchev really had been, I guess you could say in some ways, banking on the fact that um, the peace talks would kind of work out. But now it, this, kind of backfires on them because it shows again that there's been spies in the country. And so critics are going to continue to um, get upset at him for not taking a, a harsher approach basically. So all this to say, it all builds up to this um, conference in Paris that was supposed to take place. And the conference in Paris is just like days really after, well not days, but it's at least within a month, I think of when um, this incident actually takes place. And so all of the countries and their leaders show up and um, Charles de Gaulle, who is the leader of France at the time, is the one leading the summit and they're hoping that things will still work out. But as I said, Khrushchev at this point is really upset and he brings along one of those men. I can't remember his name. I think I have it written somewhere. He brings along one of the men that is very much taking or wanting to take the more aggressive approach. And so together they basically just, um, Well, he says that in order for the negotiations to continue, that he one wants Eisenhower to take full responsibility, or he wants Eisenhower to apologize, and that he also wants um, the people who were involved in the U-2, kind of the development of the U-2 planes to be punished. And Eisenhower basically says no. And at that point, the negotiations end, Khrushchev basically just leaves, and the tensions between the U.S. and Russia are once again at a very high point. So, also speaking of powers, what happens to Gary Powers, you might be wondering because he was um, found to be alive. 
he actually is sentenced to 10 years in prison. He gets out early, though, because the U.S. basically makes a swap with the Soviet Union for him and another and a spy that the U.S. had um, had, I think, in a Georgia prison for like 30 years. So they did a swap, and so Powers gets out a little bit early. He ended up, I think, later on becoming a helicopter pilot. But anyways, all this to say, who knows what would have happened. Mm-hmm. But the Cold War continues really for 30 years after this, guys. There's plenty more events, Cuban Missile Crisis, space races continuing, the Vietnam War, um, really all – up until 1989 is when the USSR, the Soviet Union, officially collapses. And I think that's the same year that the Berlin Wall was also taken down. Yeah. So all I have to say, who knows, 30 years of fear of nuclear war maybe could have been prevented. But at the same time, it's hard to know. Um, hard to know how serious both sides were about negotiation negotiations and what exactly was going to be negotiated but um yeah definitely a something that escalated tensions if nothing else so very cool oh the um it's called the supreme soviet ah the supreme soviet because if you guys remember from the book soviet means council that means the supreme council very cool the Supreme Soviet. It sounds pretty cool, honestly. <laughs> yes. It sounds like a superhero, the Supreme Soviet. Yeah, it does. He's their version of Superman. Or there is actually, for those of you guys out there who like comics, there is a comic called Red Sun Superman, which is about what would happen if Superman was born in, or he, he crash landed in Soviet Russia and Stalin raised him. It's actually pretty cool. Huh. Um, well, that aside, uh, Ms. Prickett did, I thought, a pretty amazing job. Very cool learning about our U2 history. Not Bono, not, not, not Bono, <laughs> uh, but the U2 spy plane, which look up some pictures of it, guys. It's really cool looking. It is cool. And it's crazy Check how it flew. I mean, it's almost in outer space. It's flying so high. Yeah. Okay, I can't imagine being the pilot. Yeah, I know. It's, it's wild. I mean, you, you are so high that you're, uh, I think you actually see the curve of the earth. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that would be really cool, but also, whew, I don't know. Take some courage. Well, you're up there alone for long, long periods of time. That's scary. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So uh, I have a, one or two things got to tell you guys, just little snippets here and there of history. I still, uh, Ms. Prickett and I have not decided on what we're going to do, what we're going to call this little section. We'll figure something out. I'm sure it'll be cool, but I don't have something right now. So um, let's see. I have a, I have a couple little, um, I'm going to call them oddities from history. Uh, things that I find interesting that are kind of funny and weird. So um, there is a country called Montenegro. Look for it on a map. It's tiny. Montenegro and Japan were technically at war for 101 years. 
so we did talk about the Russo-Japanese War um, when we uh, right before World War One, uh, when imperialism, Russo-Japanese War. The Japanese beat up the Russians, and everybody was surprised because now Jap Japan has a um, becomes an imperial power. But during this war, 1904 to 1905, volunteers from Montenegro were encouraged to fight in the Russian army in Manchuria, which is um, China, or pretty, it's like right bordered on China. That's where Manchuria is. However, Montenegro was not mentioned in the 1905 peace treaty and, a, and was in a technical state of war between Japan. And in 2006, Japan made a gesture of recognizing Montenegro's independence following its secession from Serbia and declared then that the hostilities were over. So they were technically at war for 101 years. And uh, now they are not at war, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, let's see. So um, in the beginning of our school year, we talk about uh, surpluses of food, all these kind of, um, we talk about bread and how it kind of, well, we didn't talk about it as much as we have in previous years because it's not part of our standards as much anymore. But bread and all this is obviously a game changer for the world. It allows people to settle down. But in ancient cultures, like the ones we talked about, they often use bread stamps. Partly because of human pride, but, most, but mostly to combat bread fraud. So each baker had a unique bread stamp that could be traced back in case the bread was found changed. So if you're a baker, you had a special stamp that you put in your bread so everybody knew they were getting that quality bread from you. Kind of cool. I thought it was, an, it was a little neat way to do it. Um, let's see. Where's the other one? I had two more that I was going to share with you. Oh, here it is. I can get out my paper. So the shortest war, I gave you one of the longest wars in modern history. I mean, it can be argued, it can be argued that the Russian, oh, the Russian, the Romans were at war with um, different Persian empires or Persia for like 700 years, which is true, but there are, there are different Persian empires. So I'm not going to count that. Uh, so I gave you the longest war and I'm gonna give you the shortest one. So the shortest war occurred between the United Kingdom and the Zanzibar Sultanate on August 27th, 1896 lasted 38 to 45 minutes. And it was technically a war. Uh, I did read about it a while ago. I can't, I, can't, I can't give you direct details, but something that you can look up yourself. It's pretty ridiculous. Obviously, if you have a war that is less than an hour long, it's pretty wild. And, um, oh yeah, here it is. So my last one is around the 17th century, New England states, so in the United States, the New England states allowed Christmas, or outlawed Christmas, I'm sorry, outlawed Christmas because celebrations were so rowdy. Uh, people, there was excessive eating and drinking and mocking of established authority. Aggressive begging, often combined with the threat of doing harm. If Kind of like trick or treat. And if you don't give me a treat, I'm going to give you a trick and the trick is me punching you in the mouth. <laughs> so there was also invasions of bo boisterous invasions of wealthy people's homes 
Now, those of you that were in my class, I know Ms. Prickett didn't do this. Um, this is one of the only times that we differed in something that we did this year. I um, told you the last day before Christmas break that um, about Krampus. And I was talking about how Christmas kind of got started. And this was one of the ways in early America, Christmas was not, not about Santa Claus, certainly not about Jesus. But that's, Christmas isn't really about Jesus. And I'll, I'll talk about that. Uh, that's a, something neither here nor there. I'm just talking about how it was a Roman holiday called Saturnalia. But because the, the whole theme wasn't there, and you're talking about New England, which is pretty puritanical. It was, you know, founded uh, by religious, I wouldn't say extremists, but by people who were very, very devout. It just goes to show that Christmas hasn't always been this high holy holiday. It was more, you know, along the lines of Easter and things like that. And also, you know, in Germanic communities, you had, you know, uh, the early days of Christmas. Like the early days of Christmas would be like December 4th and 5th. But apparently Christmas in New England around this time was more like Halloween for adults and they got to steal from people and beat them up. I just thought that was kind of a funny little American Christmas factoid for you guys. Um, now, Ms. Prickett, I don't know if you have a social studies shout out for a student. Do you? <laughs> I honestly forgot to do one as well. Um, so Wait, no, I can, I can think of plenty of people. Yes. Uh, I'm just racking through all the different choices right now. I know there, there are, there actually, we had, we've had pretty wonderful students this year. So it's, it, it is a tough I think, uh, I think I'm actually going to go because I thought this was pretty cool, but, um, Vanessa. Okay. She last week in one of our, I guess, Google meets, she brought a newspaper article that I guess her family has from, Oh. World War Two, and just kind of shared it with the rest of her classmates and um, told her that hopefully she could maybe bring it next year and show it to me in person. But I just thought it was pretty cool, and she went really above and beyond just to figure out where that was and get it out and show it to us. I thought it was pretty cool. So yeah. I'm always a big fan of primary sources. Yeah, always a big well, fan. I guess it really isn't a primary source because it was the New York Times, but... <laughs> Well, you assume that a news, if, if they're doing an interview, right, it's a primary source. So it depends on however the article is written. Yeah. Right? We're going to yeah. call it a primary source. <laughs> yes. So uh, for me, uh, it's actually, I'm going to throw out two because it's two for the, it's for the same thing, kind of. Um, now I know at least Miss Bradley, I'm not sure about Miss Schmotzer. She's doing like a little poem thing. Or kids are doing like a poem thing where they're writing poems. Now, I had two students that I know, I might have had more, but I had two students that wrote uh, kind of a little poem about me, so a shout out to that, and they were funny, it made me laugh, and I do enjoy that. Uh, one was um, Joey, and the other goes out to Cody, so shout out to both you guys, thank y'all. Uh, means a lot, it honestly does, you know, any kind of interaction I can have with you guys, even if it's through a... Uh, intermediary like Miss Bradley makes my day. Yeah, definitely. I got one of those too, and it was uh, very encouraging. So yeah, it it really is. It um, 
you know, we don't do this, we don't teach for the praise, but it's, um, it we won't does say that. Hurt. Yeah. <laughs> Just like I don't do this podcast with you for, uh, for the likes and for the, for the um, reviews, but I need them. <laughs> we somehow manage to say that every week and we will not stop just no no <laughs> not not stop oh oh i'm sorry um before we go one last thing before we go the very last thing wait i have uh, one more thing oh yeah so, you go go for it go for it go for it oh okay mine's very boring but i forgot to mention my sources so i'm just gonna do oh, that because yeah, yeah, yeah. it is important guys when you really when is. you look up this much stuff you gotta source it so yeah um, I use a little bit of history.com and NEH, NEH.gov. And then, like I said earlier, JSTOR, I mentioned one article. I also use an article called U2 United States Aircraft Spy Planes, What You Didn't Know About Them by David Reed. Mm-hmm. And I think I also looked a little bit at an art- article from the Washington Post. So, cool. Just wanted to mention that really quick. And now on to the. Yeah. Well, I guess I. It's kind of two things. First one, a preview of um, what I think I'm going to do research on. I haven't fully decided, but I think I'm going to do, because we just finished up, um, my last one was the Sengoku Jidai, which I know all you've listened to, because you're listening at the very end of this, so you probably have listened to it. Sengoku Jidai deals with, um, you know, the Japanese uh, kind of a big civil war, right? Uh, I'm going to do one, I might do one similar. There is one in, that happens in China during their warring states period where there's three major ones and a lot of crazy guys that, um, and girls for that matter, that end up fighting. And I thought I'd stay maybe in Asia. And there's a great story written in the 12th century because this all happened like a thousand years before it, but 12th century called Romance of the Twelve Kingdoms, or sorry, Three Kingdoms, Three Kingdoms. And um, it's kind of fictional, but I'm going to base a lot. So I'll tell you when it's fictional, when it's not. Um, but it co- becomes part of uh, that cultural lore, which is, I think, pretty cool. And then the very last thing, I'm going to give you guys a teaser. Uh, Miss Prickett and I are working on a theme song for the podcast, which I think you guys will enjoy it. Some very famous vocal artists are going to be on it and um, see if you can uh, identify them. Some of the best, some of the best voices. Yes. <laughs> the best you can imagine. You'd be amazed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Um, that is it for us. We will see you or we, you will hear us not next week, but hopefully the week after um, I'll get back and I'll shoot through my research and Ms. Prick and I should be back on track. Maybe a week, sorry, two weeks from tomorrow. Because right. today's Wednesday, and I'll hopefully have this up Wednesday, Thursday. All right. It's not his story. It's not her story. It's, it's our story. Boring. All right, guys. Have a great one. Bye.